I want you to turn to Matthew 21. That one's pretty easy to find. It's the first book in the New Testament, okay? But, but you can kind of put your prayer card in there or put, uh, if you've got one of those ribbons like I've got in my Bible, you can stick it there. That, or, or whatever you've got. Or put your phone in there. Okay, get right. Um, and then I want you to walk back two books to the left, okay? The, the, first, the last book before Matthew is Malachi. The next one left is Zechariah. That's where we're going to start today, Zechariah 9, okay? And we'll be in Matthew 21 eventually. Now, do you watch the show Blue Bloods? What is it on Friday night? I really like it. Um, I like the fact that they pray together. Um, it, it, it's generally a pretty uplifting show, um, um, but I did a little study this week about this issue of, you know, and their blue blood has to do with all of them are uh, New York City police officers. And, um, but I, I did some reading this week. Um, there was an idea back in the 1800s that those of royal lineage could be literally recognized by the way they look. Now, remember Samuel made that mistake with Saul. He looked kind of kingly. And so he anointed him, and he was a disaster as a king. Well, there was a thought in the 1800s that a person of royal lineage uh, could be recognized by the way they looked. In fact, they coined a term called blue blood. Heard it? Like the show. But what it had to do with is they literally would look at the veins of of a royal person, And it looked like they had not red blood flowing through their veins, but blue. They literally thought that that an aristocratic person didn't have red blood like you and I had, but blue, because their veins looked blue. Now, uh, you and I know the mistake they were making, right? The mistake they were making is the people that were working outside and were tanned didn't have that Pale, pale white skin that made your veins look blue uh, under, under the skin, right? But so they kind of start this little bit of a superstition, a folk notion that the royals had a different kind of blood, blood that was blue in color rather than red. Um, uh, I think it's kind of interesting. The blue veins of common folk, by contrast, were much less visible, and uh, so they thought they were all different. Now, I've already mentioned that that God, that, God um, that Samuel chooses uh, Saul. His outward appearance had been impressive. Samuel seems to have been evaluating possible successors on that basis. God corrects him and brings him David, and who, although becoming impressive later, really would, would have been easily overlooked and was easily overlooked by Samuel and by even David's father. That wasn't God's uh, impressive appearance, appearance, wasn't God's criteria for choosing a leader. So, God promised that David's house and kingdom would be established forever. We've been studying that over these weeks together. Um, That lineage, we believe, the New Testament reveals, um, that lineage leads to and ends with Jesus, who is the literal, eternal king of kings. Now, so when Jesus enters Jerusalem on his last week of life here on the earth, There's a lot of nationalistic expectancy tied to that, and that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about what the prophets said about him and uh, what we're going to see as the realization of that. 
Now, Zechariah is a common name in the Bible. In fact, there are at least 30 different characters in the Bible that wear the name Zechariah, including uh, John's father, John the Baptist's father, that we meet early in the Gospel of, of um, Luke. Well, um, the Zechariah of the book by that name was called by God to be a prophet along with Haggai to urge the Jews to rebuild the temple after exile. You can read about that in the book of Ezra. Zechariah returned with freed exiles to Judah in about 536 B.C., or about 50 years after the exile. He comes back, and his job as a preacher is to encourage them to rebuild the temple. His prophecies begin in about 520 B.C., and temple restoration was completed about five years later, in 515. Um, we, as you read through Zechariah, you need to probably think about it in those terms, but you also need to recognize that as Zechariah talks about futuristic things and preaches to, mo to his modern-day peers, there's a real messianic flavor in about everything he says, chapter by chapter by chapter. Messianic meaning he has a lot of things to predict or say about what the Messiah is going to be like. There's this underlying sense of the Messiah in all of his writings. So, Zechariah understands there are bigger issues for his people than temple and land, even though he's encouraging them to rebuild. The people need an ultimate deliverer. They need a Messiah. And Zechariah describes him in certain places in his book, like in 9, which is we're going to begin with Zechariah 9, 9. That ought to be easy to remember, but when you realize that Zechariah is next to Zephaniah. And, okay, you know, it's kind of confusing, but, but at least hopefully you found him. Bob, would you mind reading verse 9 and 10 from Zechariah 9? Okay, now, we've got to catch some things. Uh, Zechariah is going to give us some detail about the coming of the king that's pretty amazing considering he's writing from 500 years before Jesus is born. All right, now, um, he begins uh, this section in verse 9 uh, with talking about um, uh, how the king will come. All right? He's, I'm going to give you three words to deal with that uh, Zechariah uh, informs us about. He says that when the king comes, when this messianic king comes, he will come righteously. What does that mean? He'll be right with God. He'll be just. He will be holy. Uh, any of those words that you'd like to use, he will perform God's will when he comes, and only God's will. Now, when we look at the series of kings that have come in the past, we realize that sometimes they got it right and sometimes they didn't, right? This is the king who will come and he will always do the right thing. Isn't that wonderful to think about? We'll never have to apologize for him 
uh, he'll never have handlers around him that have to say, well, what he meant to say was this, right? Although, by the way, they tried to do that occasionally, okay? Okay, secondly, he will come victoriously. And if anything, uh, Zechariah 9 teaches us that we connect the dots with the Matthew 21 and places like John 11 and other places. It's that uh, it was predicted that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem victoriously. And we see it here as Jesus enters. So he's going to enter victoriously. Um, the image here is one of the, one returning from victory from a battle. And, and by the way, they would know about that. They would have read about it. So many of them would have been old enough to uh, see the Romans march victoriously through Jerusalem years before, uh, and, and they, as they will again uh, later on in 70 or 72 AD. But, but the idea here is of a king marching back into, coming back into, into the city uh, after having vanquished or conquered, and he comes in riding, riding victoriously. But what would a victorious conquering king typically do uh, he would typically ride in on a snorting white horse in full battle armor with army. You know, I, I read um, uh, Estella about how the Romans would do this. They would have um, they would have armaments that preceded him, kind of like the thing that you used to see when they did that in Red Square years ago. You know, they kind of kind of showing off, and then the king would. Follow that procession on a white horse as victor in full battle gear. But that's not what Zechariah says is going to happen with this king. He's going to ride in victoriously, but lowly. That's the third word. That gets the contrast. Victoriously, but lowly. Now, by the way, it's really important that you and I catch, catch this contrast because most of Jesus' contemporaries didn't catch it. It's important that you and I catch that he's coming back to Jerusalem for the final time, victoriously but lowly, humbly. How is that depicted then in Zechariah's prophecy? He's going to ride on a donkey, not a horse. Interesting, I think. Now, um, a horse is a symbol of war, a symbol of military might and power in Jesus' day. Riding on a donkey would be a symbol of peace, and Zechariah even identifies it here in his teaching. He's going to come righteously. He's going to come victoriously, but humbly or lowly. Now, verse 10 tells us a little bit about the extent of his reign. Uh, it's going to talk about what happens when he comes, will you turn with me um, um, to 5, I think it's Zechariah 5, 9. Uh-oh. I need somebody to go for me to Matthew 5, 9. That 5, 9 shouldn't be Zechariah, that should be Matthew. Okay? All right, now, he's going to say here in verse 10 that, Ten again, uh, he's going to say here that um, he's talking about Ephraim. Catch that reference, okay? When the Old Testament, after kind of uh, before and after the exile, and certainly after the divided kingdom of Israel, 
when Ephraim is talked about, it's always talking about the northern ten tribes, not just the tribe of Ephraim. So the idea here is that all of Israel, okay, when it says Ephraim and Jerusalem, okay, it's talking about the southern uh, kingdom of Judah and the northern here, okay, um, that, that he will serve over or reign over. Rejoice, um, I will cut the chariot off from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. Now, what that's, those two references there, the first part of that is chariots and horses represent what? War. Armaments will no longer be really relevant, it's saying. This is not about war, even though they were looking for that. They were looking for another David. We've said that before, right? And it will be for not only Jerusalem and Judah, but also for the other ten tribes of, of Israel that have kind of been, you know, sometimes they're called the lost ten tribes. They've just been estranged. This will be the whole of the nation here. So that's the extent of his reign. It will be uh, from sea to sea. It's kind of talked about here from the river to the sea. That's talking about all the earth. And one other thing that I want you to catch here is that um, there will be, when he comes to reign, there will be no resistance. Um, look at it. He will speak peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea and the river to the ends of the earth. There's kind of this idea. The bow of war will be cut off, the horse from Jerusalem, the chariot from Ephraim, that, that when he finally reigns, that there will be no resistance. And there's this idea that weapons of war will no longer be needed. Troy, we talk about guns occasionally. He will, there will no longer be need for that. You can use an F-18 Hornet as a planter. John, that got your attention, didn't it? Did you fly a 16? Uh, okay, yeah, there you go. About like a Texas plane. Did you fly a 16, John? What did you fly? Okay. Okay. Big planes. Okay. I, I, I've forgotten what you guys flew back in the day, but I knew you flew. Wouldn't it be interesting to know that all these armaments of war, uh, my wife goes to work at Tinker every morning and sees all these airplanes, you know, ready for doing their thing. Wouldn't it be interesting if they were all had pansies planted in them? I mean, you know, I mean... The Lord is going to turn things upside down. That's kind of the idea. All right, now. Now, the extent is that far. Now, what you and I have got to ask here. Who, did somebody find Matthew 5, 9? Thank you. Our friend right back here is going to read it. Thank you. In the middle of Jesus, this great sermon. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Now, one of the things that I've got to continue to ask is if Jesus' kingdom, if the kingdom of God will be a kingdom of peace, then what is my role in bringing peace to my part of the world? What's my role? Because eventually, that's what's going to reign. Okay, now let's move on. And what I want you to do is go now to the right, a couple of books, and we're going to find ourselves in Matthew 21. And we're going to see what happens that Zechariah predicted from 500 years before. All right? 
Okay, let's go to Matthew 21. I want somebody, if you will, to read uh, the first three verses of Matthew 21. And stop right there for now. Okay, now, we've got to catch the drama that's getting ready to take place, okay? And I want to put it in a, in, a, uh, in a chronology for you. This trip that he's taking here that we're talking about in Matthew 21 corresponds to next Friday in the church calendar, okay? That's not Good Friday. That's the Friday before Good Friday, okay? Now, he and the disciples are going to get up early in the morning. They're in the north, and they're going to travel to Jerusalem, okay, stopping off in Bethany to spend the night with uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus and that crew, okay, and it'll take them, it's about uh, a 3,300-foot climb from where they are in the north, uh, in in Jericho, actually, is where they're coming from, Uh, about a 17-mile trip. They're going to get up early enough in the day that they can arrive in, in the Jerusalem precincts by uh, mid, ap- mid to late afternoon. Why? Because they can't travel after that. Because it's Sabbath beginning Friday evening. Okay? This is the Friday before Good Friday. All right? They're going to stop off, have uh, dinner with, um, with Simon's family. Um, Simon, the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And uh, they're going to rest there. And then what we're seeing then as begins in... <clears throat> excuse me, in chapter 21 is they're going to get up Sunday. They can't travel on the Sabbath, right? They're going to get up after the Sabbath is passed and begin to make their way into the holy city, passing through Bethpage where they're going to stop. Now, Bethpage is is an eastern precinct of, uh, it's a little closer than Bethany. Both of them are on kind of the east side from what I understand and it's a place from which they can get to Jerusalem pretty quickly, but it's not right in the hubbub of Jerusalem. They're going to stop there, and Jesus is going to give them some, um, some uh, uh, things to do uh, to get ready for his entrance. The stay then begins on Friday. Verse 2 and 3, we find that the king's mount is, and I want to be careful how to use this, but it, it seems to me like, in many ways, this mount is prearranged. Does it seem like that to you? Uh, could it be that this was all serendipitous? There's a, lot of, there's a lot of serendipitous things that happen over the next day. But I, it sounds like this is kind of prearranged. Hey, why, do, why would I think that? I'm sorry, say that again, Gloria. Certainly it's set up by God. But even when we get to Matthew and to John, when, when they tell the story, it's like, you're going to go to this guy, he's going to have a colt. Um, uh, for instance, that colt, they're not going to find that donkey uh, in the field plowing or carrying any, any burden. Did you see the stories this week about the, uh, the election in Afghanistan? They're carrying ballots to the capital to be counted 
on the back of donkeys, in, in big tubs on the back of donkeys. I just thought it was kind of interesting, uh, given our story for this week. Okay? It's kind of prearranged here. Now, what, he's, what he says you're going to find, and only, uh, only Matthew gives us this de- detail. All four of the gospel writers tell about the triumphal entry, but only Matthew tells us that there's going to be a jenny there you're going to look for. What's a jenny? It's a girl donkey, not a jack, but a jenny. I won't go any further with that reference. Okay? There's, a, there's a jenny who will have a cult. Now, it's important that we catch that because the cult, are you ready, has never been ridden. Now, I wonder, I wonder if that cult was ever ridden after this Sunday. I don't know. Did he go into work? Did did they put him into force, force him to work after this? I don't know. If they really caught what was going on, I don't think so, but I don't know. For that day... This little donkey was really important. Are Thelma and Louise still living? Louise no. Was Thelma. Sorry to bring up bad things. Um, John and Pat used to have two miniature donkeys at their place named Thelma and Louise, right? <laughs> and they chased the coyotes and wolves and stuff away, is what I remember. They were fierce as all get out, right? But they were t- weren't they small Okay, they weren't regular size, but I, I just, they were cute, and I loved hanging out with them. But, um, but you would understand why I would like hanging out with a donkey, though, I'm sure, so I won't go there for you. All right, now. Um, okay, now. I think, if you look at verse 4, let's read verse 4. This took place... Uh, Jesus gives them these pretty detailed instructions in three. If they say to you, the Lord has need, if they say anything to you, say the Lord has need of them, and they'll send them. This look took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, and he quotes kind of, it's kind of a compressed version of what we've read in Isaiah 9. Okay? Now, I think that Jesus is aware here that he's fulfilling the prophecy. What do you think? Look at 517. Go back a few pages. Look at 517. Somebody read that for us when you get there. And somebody else go to 2711. Okay? I'll just call it out, whoever gets it. Who, who, who's got 517? <coughs> He came to fulfill the prophets. He said that early on. Okay, what does 2711 say? Okay, now, I want you to catch this here. You could argue that what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 21 and John 11 and the other Gospels is a self-fulfilling prophecy. He knew the prophecy. He's making sure it happens as the prophet predicted. Okay? I'll give you that. If that's the case, what does that do with the naysayers who will say in our day that Jesus really didn't ever have any idea that he was the Messiah? 
You can't have it both ways, folks. Sounds to me like he knew full well who he was. And in fact, when he gets before Pilate on the next Friday, Pilate will say, they say you're the king of, Jew, king of the Jews. And what was Jesus' answer? You said it. Okay? Now, I don't think there was anything that Jesus was confused about right here. But what I do think you and I have got to catch is we look at places like verse 5. Look at verse 5. When, when it's talking about, uh, he's kind of giving this compressed version of what, I, of what uh, Zechariah has predicted. What we see here is a humble king. And in their day, that was an absolute oxymoron. A humble king. That's like saying, uh, looking, going to the store, to the seafood market, and asking for a jumbo shrimp. Kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? Right? A humble Texan. I mean, sorry, John. <laughs> I couldn't resist, man. You, you kind of made me do that. Just remember, three out of the five start for Kentucky. Okay, the thing, they really are. Three out of five are from Texas. Well, I know the one guy was, they were interviewed last night. It was from Dallas. All right. A humble king. This is something they've never seen before. Now, you've got to see the picture here. Jerusalem is brimming with people. There will be no more people ever in the city in, a, in the period of a year than during Passover weekend. This is a town of 50,000 that may have as many as 2.5 million in its surrounding precincts during, during um, Passover. It's brimming with people. Um, you got to catch this. As he rides in, he's not riding on uh, with his feet in the stirrups on a, on a uh, conquering, victorious steed. His feet are barely off the ground. Can you catch this? As this unridden colt is waddling into Jerusalem. Now, Let's somebody, if you would please, read for us 6 down through 11. What I'm going to suggest to you is that much of what happens on this day is prophesied, yet it's still spontaneous, improvised. Okay? Now, somebody read 6 down through 11. Okay, this is high drama here. We've got to catch it. Much of what happens that day is prophesied yet spontaneous. Um, this is the biggest happening in the city on that particular Sunday. The excitement of the crowd is absolutely contagious. It's an electric thing. Uh, by the way, I, I put John 12, 13 in here. That's John's telling of this story. That's where we get the idea of palm branches. You don't get that from Matthew. 
Okay? That's why we call it Palm Sunday. Okay? And people are throwing their coats. They're, throwing, they're ripping branches off the of trees. They're throwing them down. Uh, the disciples themselves take their own cloaks and other po- person's cloaks and put it on top of the donkey so that Jesus has a saddle. There's no saddle on this donkey. All right? It's, all, it's kind of spontaneous, even though prepared for 500 years, right? So the people shout at least three things. First of all, they shout a, a word that we find from Psalm 118 that's to- closely tied to uh, this Palm Sunday. It's the word Hosanna. Hosanna literally meant save us, and it literally meant save us now. Do you suppose many of them caught the image of who this was riding in on the donkey's colt? Some of them caught this. Hosanna. Secondly, they called him the son of David. A clear messianic reference. We've talked about that for the last several weeks. They they apparently see him as the king that Zechariah foresaw. And third, then a blessing. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That comes from Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A blessing from Psalm 18. A psalm that seems to portray the entry of David and his army into Jerusalem. And now they're extrapolating that that a thousand years forward. Okay, now. They shout all these three things. And then people around him. there, There are those who are caught up in this excitement. That are looking at those who are saying, Hosanna. Hosanna, Hosanna, and what are they asking? Uh, sorry? Save us, that's what they're saying. But then there's, a, there's a, kind of a, a, other members of the crowd that are asking a question. Do you catch the question? Who is this? You've got to write that on your outline. Who is this? The whole city is stirred, and those who are not part of maybe that 10,000 that lined the road, and maybe some of them who were part of that 10,000 who lied lined the road as he comes in, and they're all shouting Hosanna. Others say, who is this? Well, the answer is not a good one. In fact, it's kind of weak. I would put on my outline, the answer, their answer is lacking. Uh, you might use the word tepid. Their answer is lacking. Notice what they answer. They answer, they give his name, Jesus, real common name, but they give his name. They say he's a prophet. In verse 11, and they say he's from Nazareth. Okay, I'm going to want to connect the dots with you, all right? If you're living in Oklahoma City in 2014, and somebody asks you, who is Kevin Durant? You're not going to answer, he's a basketball player from Washington, D.C. Who is that guy? Who's that really tall guy? It's, he's a basketball player from Washington, D.C. His name is Kevin. You're not going to answer that, are you? You're going to say, that's KD. He's probably the MVP this year. Do you see how tepid their answer was? This is Jesus. He's a prophet. He's a preacher from Nazareth. Now, what I, I asked the question here, what did he accomplish on that Sunday? And I, I think... Uh, that my answer to that is a little startling. Um, he didn't conquer Jerusalem. He didn't claim the earthly crown of David, try to set up himself in the palace. He raised no triumphal arch as the Romans did. He didn't lead an army against the Romans. 
And by the end of the week, he was dead. Think of that. But the people in the crowd are saying, who is this? Now, I want to go back to our three questions here. Do you know who he is? Do you know this Jesus? I've been asking that for weeks, haven't I? Do you know this, this one? The one that Zechariah prophesied would ride into town on a Jenny's colt. Do you know that one? Do you know the one whom the children waved palm branches and laid them on their coats in front of him and said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the king of David. Do you know that one? Do you want to know him? (laughs) Do you want him? We have got to connect the dots between the central figure in the Bible and the central figure in all of human history, these central events that begin uh, a couple of Fridays from now as we kind of begin to think about them, Good Friday and three days later, which we'll talk about next week. Do you know him? Do you know this one? Do you want him? Now, let me give you a couple of passages to read for next week. Jeremiah 23, Zechariah 6. So we're in the same book, but we'll back up a couple of chapters. Jeremiah 23, Zechariah 6, and we'll tie that to John 19. We're going to look at the cross a little bit. Did Jesus accomplish what he came to the earth to do? Oh, you bet your boots. He just did it. On a donkey instead of a steed. Make sure you don't miss the distinction of the triumphant king. God bless you. Have a great Sunday. See you next week.